This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. What is Bitcoin anyway? It's not backed by a bank or a country, but rather by a complex and revolutionary form of bookkeeping called the blockchain. Instead of a ledger tracking each deposit and withdrawal, the blockchain spreads its books out over a peer-to-peer network of computers, each transaction becoming a new block in an open chain. From Bitcoin to NFTs, interest in crypto and the blockchain has never been greater. Millions of people around the world invest in various cryptocurrencies, exchanges seem to pop up daily, And for better or worse, the pace of innovation and new services is reminiscent of the early days of the Internet. As the industry races ahead, where does the law fit in? Can the law fit in? Addison Cameron Huff is a Toronto-based blockchain and cryptocurrency lawyer, a former president of Decentral, a leading Canadian blockchain company, and the co-founder of Toronto Blockchain Week. His clients have included virtual currency dealers, DeFi platforms, and stablecoin developers. He joins me on the podcast to provide some insight into the state of Canadian law and regulation when it comes to this fast-moving, globally-oriented sector. Addison, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that you were able to come on. You know, interest in crypto and the blockchain has, has seemingly never been greater with increasing mainstreaming of Bitcoin, ETH, the emergence of decentralized finance, DeFi, NFTs. Uh, you know, there's a lot of acronyms here, and so perhaps we can un- we'll unpack some of those as we go. Uh, and there's certainly a, a lot of excitement about some of the new use cases for the blockchain. Now, you're someone as a literally a blockchain lawyer who's been in the space for a long time. How do you see this evolution? You know, are we still at the early stages, as some suggest, or is it something else? We're in the early stages. We're in the mid stages. We're in the late stages. It's taken a few years for this to take off. I've doing this for a number of years. It takes a while to put together the pieces for the big vision, but along the way, you get things that work. This started off in the payment space. That's where a lot of the action was a number of years ago. And now it's going in a whole lot of new directions, like you've pointed out. So we're early on some things, we're further along in the evolution of other things, and people are still trying to figure out how you make this technology do useful things. Yeah, no, there's certainly a lot of experimentation, a lot of innovation. To what extent is Canada a player on the, on the global scene? You know, are some of the, some of the Canadian innovators, some of these companies are, are, are they recognized globally or does it tend to be more of a, a local thing? Canadians play an outside, outsized role in this field, I would say. If you attend these conferences, um, many of them in other countries, you'll see a lot of Canadians there. And, A lot of this is what I was talking about of the people in the background, B2B services, people quietly running their businesses privately. It's hard to say how outsized Canada's role in, but Canada's certainly a leader, and Canada's a leader in some of the legal areas too, being pretty early in legislation, as well as being pretty early in some of the approvals. Like, for example, there are Bitcoin exchange-traded funds in Canada, and there aren't in the U.S. So there's one area where a regulator, in fact, all the regulators in Canada, have beaten their American colleagues to the punch on approving these things. And people expect it's only a matter of time 
until they're approved in the United States. Yeah, that's a great example of, of a place where Canada has moved quickly. You know, I'm, I'm curious, there's been a fair amount of attention paid to what's taken place in China over the last number of months, in particular, their decision to, to really essentially send many of the Bitcoin mining operations out of the country or basically shut them down such that they've gone elsewhere. Since so much of this is tied to energy, I, I can recall years ago when the talk was about cloud computing that, you know, there was the sense that Canada could be a global leader in cloud computing. We had an opportunity to, to put some of those cloud computing facilities up in the north where there might be lower energy costs. Um, it didn't quite emerge that way. Is, does Canada play a role on the mining operation side? And is there, is there an opportunity there in the same way that people were thinking about a big base for cloud computing to be a big base for, for Bitcoin type mining operations? Mm -hmm. Well, for cloud computing, Canada is certainly not a leader, and all of this stuff is outside of Canada. It's actually kind of hard to host something in Canada today, which I think is a shame. Not so in the crypto mining space. Canada has a number of excellent companies in this space. Some of them are publicly traded. HUD8 is an example of that. And you mentioned earlier about China. China certainly didn't make a rule saying you have to move to other countries. <laughs> the rule was you're not allowed to do it anymore. And that drove people out of China. Um, China is a market that is difficult for people to understand if they're not in China. I'm certainly not an expert at that, but there has been a noticeable uptick in that activity in Canada and the United States following these moves in China. And just to kind of position the conversation, the two largest countries in the cryptocurrency space are China and the United States. That's by far where the major markets are. So, so this is a big move. China was a major country for mining. It's still a major country for development, for crypto companies. There's a lot happening in China. The government is not so interested in the mining continuing there, though. And probably that's a better thing for the planet because Canada has access to more environmentally friendly energy than China does. Yeah, so it does sound like there is the, the same kind of opportunity that you're quite right in the cloud computing side never hmm. seemed to emerge. Some people attributed to our networks, but for whatever reason, we're not a major host, but perhaps that will change here. You know, so, so there, it, it's, it's interesting to note that there, we have seen some of this business development uh, in Canada and with, and, and with before this move in China, even before China's legal changes on this front already. There was lots of mining in Canada. It's just now there's a little bit more. There's even more taking place. Interesting. Now, I, I of course, wanted to focus primarily on, on law and regulation. And there's so many different sort of new services and ideas that are emerging and a number of perspectives that we can take. Why don't we start with some of the largest exchanges? And we've seen over also this past year, some of the some of the largest services, for example, Binance, indicate that they're going to stop providing services to Ontario residents at the end of the year. Can you describe a little bit what the legal frameworks look like for, for these exchanges? How hard is it to operate here? And, and I guess how different are things as between the provinces, since my understanding is that, you know, Ontario residents may find themselves locked out of certain services, but that's not true for residents in some other provinces. That's a really interesting question, because you're really talking about two different things. One, what's the reality? And the other is, what's the law? Uh, legally, there's no difference here between the provinces. That's significant. It's not about Ontario doing something special. It's more about Ontario's enforcement actions and that many companies abroad 
don't care very much about the laws of Canada. Like they don't care about the laws of most of the world. The world is chock full of legal systems and it's impossible for companies to stay on top of them. So what many companies do is they take a risk-oriented approach to their legal compliance. This is very different than a Canadian company, which would obviously look to Canadian laws and get Canadian lawyers to assist them. But for an international company, they look at what's our risk and are we in active trouble? And that's the case with lots of these international crypto companies where the regulators take an interest in them and they send them a letter and they tell them to stop. And many companies take that approach, that that's their legal compliance strategy to wait until they get a letter and then they stop. So some of the things you see with Ontario or you see with the United States, it's not due to the legal system being different. It's due to their enforcement actions. And the OSC has a large budget compared to some of the other provinces. But on this front, there isn't really a difference. And um, I don't work for Binance and I don't think Binance is the best legal model to look at. It's a lot better to look at the domestic companies. Okay. So, so there you get some of the larger players that basically intend to fly below the radar screen a little bit once they rise up to a certain level that they attract the attention of enforcement agencies. They've got to make a call, either comply or get out of the jurisdiction. We've seen some say that they're going to make some effort to get out of the jurisdiction. If they're interested in complying, as you suggest that the Canadian services are, what does that involve? How how detailed is the regulatory environment right now? More detailed every year. So a number of years ago, the federal government uh, brought in as part of uh, omnibus legislation some changes to the anti-money laundering counter-terrorist financing system in Canada by amending the uh, principal legislation for that. And that brought in a new era of virtual currency dealers. And those rules continued to ramp up, partly to align Canada with international standards as expressed by an organization called FATF, but also an evolving approach to it as the sector grows. So on the one hand, you have this anti-money laundering system, which has existed for a while, and that's overseen by FinTrack, as well as some involvement in Quebec by the AMF. And then over the last couple of years, there's been a new legal regime emerging from securities regulators who have taken a position on the law. So this is different than the anti-money laundering side, where the anti-money laundering side, there was a legislative change that created the virtual currency dealer system overseen by FinTrack. There's no change in the laws with the securities regulators, and probably they would struggle to get the provincial governments to change the securities laws to specifically target the virtual currency sector. So instead, they've taken an interpretive approach and they've said, well, there's no change required because, in fact, many of these activities are already within our jurisdiction and we're now going to focus our attention on them. Prior to this change in approach, they largely confined themselves to issuing press releases saying, watch out for scams in Bitcoin or watch out for international scams, that kind of stuff. But over the last couple of years, they've been quite keen on regulating the space basically through interpretation. And that system that's emerging is being called a restricted dealer system. And the rules of that are still evolving as they figure out what those rules should look like. But the rules look similar to the securities dealer framework. So that would be the services that you trade stocks with. That's their model. 
Okay, if that's the model, can you give a, a few examples of how that's being applied to to virtual currency? So if we were having this conversation four years ago, I would tell you that the number one thing to think about on the security side would be what your inventory is if you're a virtual currency dealer. Are you dealing in things that are unlawful securities? And there's been a lot of that in the cryptocurrency sector because it's quite easy to make unlawful securities. Uh, because securities are a pretty broad concept and they're just something you do where you created a security intentionally or unintentionally. So an example of this would be something like I make a token that tokenizes some sort of uh, real estate development in Canada and I sell these tokens to lots of people and I tell them, look, you're entitled to one one thousandth of the building and as we earn money from the rent, we'll pay you your pro rata share to your tokens. Something like that would probably be an unlawful securities offering. And that used to be the main concern. So making sure that tokens aren't unlawful securities, and then for virtual currency dealers, making sure they're not accidentally dealing in things that are unlawful, because those kinds of securities are sort of like toxic waste. Nobody's really interested in dealing with them, because you need to be a securities dealer to deal in securities, and it's very hard to become a securities dealer considerably harder than becoming what's called a money services business, which is the anti-money laundering side of things. But now it's a little bit different because the securities regulators in Canada have taken an interesting approach to this issue where they've said, not only is it that the tokens you're dealing in might be securities, you know, pay attention to that, but we're talking about something new here where if the platform that's selling to the customer If somebody goes on there and they buy, let's say, one Bitcoin for $100,000. So for me as the customer, I send my $100,000 to the platform. They say, great, your account is funded. And I log into the website and I click buy and I buy one Bitcoin for $100,000. And they immediately credit my account online with the one Bitcoin and they debit my $100,000. In one sense, I don't have that Bitcoin yet because it's still sitting on that platform and I haven't withdrawn that into my own wallet that I control. So in stocks, you never get to control the stocks. Somebody else does. In fact, a series of companies control the stocks. It's very hard to get access to the stocks themselves. The system's not really designed for that. You're supposed to just view your stocks on the platform. But cryptocurrencies were designed from the beginning that you're not supposed to view it on someone else's platform. You're supposed to have it, and you can't because of the cryptographic system which is very fascinating, but we probably don't have time to get into. But you can have it yourself and you can store it on your own computer system, completely independent of anyone. You don't need to rely on anyone, completely yours. No one can take it. And you can only do that when you have the private keys and you control that. But in my example of the platform, they have the Bitcoin. In one sense, I don't have it yet because it hasn't gone to my wallet. And so the way that basically every exchange and many virtual currency dealers in the world work is the user has to click withdraw and specify where they want that platform to send their cryptocurrency to. And then they promptly send it. But what the securities regulators have said is that's not good enough, that you can't let the person withdraw it when they want to. It needs to be forcibly sent to the user as soon as they buy it so that they get it for real rather than get it on the platform. There's actually more to this legal discussion. But this is the core 
idea here. And, and they're saying, because if you don't do that, you've accidentally created a security or a derivative where that, f- that is a type of virtual unit that the platform has. And that virtual unit is the security or derivative. And thus the platform has become a securities dealer, but they don't have the license for it. That's the idea there. And so they've told people, well, you either have to make it. So as soon as that person does the buy, it gets sent to their wallet, or you have to become a restricted dealer. This is a quick summary of a complicated area of securities law. So for anyone listening to this, there is definitely more to this. But at a high level, that's what's going on. And this has been a big challenge for people in the industry because they could change their business to automatically do those withdrawals. But there are very good reasons why that's not done. It's not very safe for users. Um, For one, what if you're using a different address now? What if you're using a different wallet and you actually want it sent somewhere else? If they automatically sent it, they might send it to somewhere you don't have access to anymore. And then you'd be out the money because there's no reversing the transactions with cryptocurrency. And that non-reversibility is a huge issue for platforms. They wanna be very careful not to lose that cryptocurrency. And they wouldn't want a business model that results in those sorts of losses because it wouldn't be very customer friendly. So kind of your choice is stop being so customer friendly and come up with a different way to operate your business or become a restricted dealer and enter into this system that the provincial securities regulators are building right now. Interesting. So we're likely to see at least some of the well-known Canadian exchanges finding mechanisms to immediately transfer the virtual no, currency or the cryptos? They will they... actually become restricted dealers. Okay. Because changing their business model it would be so negative for the customers that it makes more sense for them to pay a whole lot of money to securities lawyers than it does to change how they deliver to customers. Okay. So we're going to end up with a highly regulated space uh, in Canada, far more than than existed in the past, at least at this level of the, of the ecosystem. I'm not a big fan of highly regulated as a term um, because that means a lot of different things to different people. One thing you will see is higher fees for customers. Another thing is you'll probably see more involvement from the traditional players in the securities market because prior to these changes, they wouldn't really have viewed this as being within securities. They would say, well, that's something else. We don't really do this. But now that these things are merging, probably you'll see some of the larger players, which means the big banks, getting more into this. We'll see if they choose to, but that would be my guess. And you actually might not see what you just said as an effect. You actually might see more people use less regulated platforms in other countries. Because if they can't get what they want, people will go elsewhere. Because Canada is not actually an island. And what we're talking about here is things that are entirely within computers. And that means doing business over the internet. And already people are doing that. You mentioned Binance, great example. That is an overseas cryptocurrency exchange that claims to not be located in any country. And the founder of it is always on the move. Um, It's not a Canadian business that you can go find their headquarters. And people really like it. It's very affordable, it's very popular. You're very right, there's a huge service, but it's outside of this framework and there's tons of services like that. And I'm not so sure that people will switch to worse, more expensive or 
possibly just won't have any option at all because securities regulators are not super keen on the kind of innovation that's happening in this space for good reasons, um, but also due to the mindset of securities regulators. If you're a securities regulator, you see things through the securities regulator lens. You don't see things through one of the angles you were talking about a few minutes ago about how can we increase Canada's competitiveness? How can we get more of this here rather than less of it? And already quite a lot of this activity actually is taking place in other countries. And these rules don't attract very many people. In fact, they cause people to move to other countries. Speaking of, of some of those foreign services, you know, in my somewhat limited experience, you know, it, it's striking that on many of those services, you see oftentimes far more extensive offerings, certainly uh, a far more vari- far larger variety of, of crypto uh, virtual coins, but be really even be or tokens. But even beyond that, there are rewards and staking and the opportunity to earn interest in liquidity pools. I mean, there's all these th- different things taking place, even on some of the exchanges. Uh, many of these are not compatible with Canada's emerging legal regime. Yeah, so so it's likely that we will, if, if that doesn't emerge, then it does sound that we'll do even more, it sounds like, to drive consumers who are looking for some of those opportunities uh, out of the country. I think so. And I've been saying this for years. Um, it doesn't really matter to regulators, though, right? From their perspective, it's not their job to improve Canada's economy or increase the availability of cryptocurrency services to Canadians. That's nobody's mandate. Their mandate is to deal with their legislation. And if they take the view that their legislation covers it, it's kind of their job to do something about that, right? And it doesn't really reflect these concerns of consumers. DeFi or decentralized finances certainly attracted an enormous amount of attention. We're seeing a, a big shift, many users using services like Uniswap and others that move them even outside of the exchanges, whether regulated or not. Uh, can these decentralized exchanges be effectively regulated or are they likely to remain sort of outside the scope of all of this? If you were to talk to regulators, they would say everyone is regulated. They say we haven't granted any exemptions to anyone. This feels like when you think of the growth of, of DeFi and how, you know, just the pure volume that we're seeing take place on some of these exchanges that it's almost like a, just a, a parallel universe emerging. Those that are choo- will choose to be part of this regulated system. You mentioned uh, some of the Canadian providers who will choose to be part of that Canadian system, but then you're going to have essentially competitors that look similarly, but are able to offer more because they situate themselves outside of the regulatory system. And then you've got this whole nother group of providers who Some of them, it's not aren't really choice. subject to any regulation. It's not a choice. It's that their services are fundamentally incompatible with Canadian law. For example, most of these Canadian laws, they require the company to identify their customer to a high degree of specificity, which really means obtaining their identification. So they need a copy of your driver's license, for example. But how does that work with a computer program? So in the world of actual people buying and selling with you or some exchange where it's user to user, that can work where you can authorize people like that. But in a truly decentralized system where you're interacting with a computer program, there's no way to upload your ID. And not many people would want to do that because the way that blockchains work is the information is available to anyone. So if you were to upload Michael Geist's driver's license to Ethereum, first off, the data costs would be astronomical. So it's not actually going to work technically. But if you did, 
would you really want your driver's license available to everyone in the world forever? Well, I think that, that answer is obvious, but it, you, you've, I think, put your finger on, on one of the really interesting challenges. And, you know, I've, I've seen some talk about how the blockchain can really be privacy enhancing and others talk about a world in which uh, the governments will, may well come in. Governments will come in and say, we're concerned about money laundering, we're concerned about consumer protection, a range of other issues. We want greater disclosure, whether that's know your customer or uh, other mechanisms of disclosure. This comes up particularly in the context of discussion around uh, central bank stable coins. Um, can you talk a little bit about what those are for people that don't know and, and where Canada stands on that issue? Well, right now there's all kinds of digital money and basically all money is digital money now. And then there's different sorts of money as well. And then central bank digital currencies are an attempt to take some of the ideas from cryptocurrency and control it more at a centralized level by a central bank. So that's the idea in a nutshell, but the actual implementations are really different by country. They all kind of call them CBDCs. They like using that categorical name, but the approaches to it are very different. Can you describe a little bit what some of those approaches are? And, and I guess most notably, what, 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 what kind of discussions have we seen in Canada around those issues? One good example that's gotten a lot of attention to push this forward, and they already have a system for this, and that system is supposed to work with the social credit system, which is about denying people services and um, having essentially credit scores, requiring people to identify themselves at restaurants and, and things like that is, is that kind of system, right? Um, and one of the things they proposed is the idea that people will have time-limited money. So the government can distribute money to people that expires after a while and to come up with other kinds of new ways of making money more controllable and more programmable by the central authority, as opposed to just issuing you money where you get to keep it. So setting more rules on it and coming up with new innovative types of money, like expiring money. And they haven't really talked about that on the Canadian side yet, probably because customers might not really like that idea of their money expiring. And that's not a very positive story to tell. But they have been talking about offering something that's a central bank digital currency because we already have digital money and surely they should be looking at new ideas, new ways of doing this. They haven't done it yet. They're doing research. They're doing their homework on it, but there isn't actually a CBDC in Canada that you can use. One of the things that's inspired them is what's been done in the private sector where quite a few people have created uh, stable coins, which are a type of token, so a type of virtual currency asset that's supposed to mirror some government's money. So for example, there's a client of mine that has one of these systems that's a Canadian dollar stable coin. And then there's lots of them for the United States dollar. They vary in their implementations. Some are done in partnerships with banks, some of them with trust companies, some of them outside of those legal regimes. Around the world, they have slightly different models, but the goal is to have a token where one token equals $1. Because for many applications, you don't want to be using a fluctuating uh, value. So for example, Ether or Bitcoin, they fluctuate quite a lot. And for many applications, you want to have $1 is one unit, and you want $1 today to be worth approximately $1 five days from now, not 
$1.05. For a lot of applications, that stable value is an important attribute. And so the CBDCs have looked at what's been done in the private sector and the central banks have been saying, well, why don't we do that? Why can't we make something like this? But they also fear cryptocurrencies. If you read the papers issued by central banks around this, such as in Canada, the research that has been published by the Bank of Canada, they note this will not be like cryptocurrency. And they also note that it won't be like cash because they don't like the anonymity that's involved there. I find it kind of funny that they sort of badmouth their own money that they're also responsible for. But people hear CBDCs and think it's the same as virtual currency. It's not. They have different ideas to it and they have different requirements for it. And probably we're headed to a world where all of these things coexist, where you've got virtual currencies, you've got stable coins, you've got multiple CBDCs issued by different countries, you've got your regular digital money, and you have your physical cash. That'll be an interesting environment. I mean, it does raise to to bring back the privacy issue that you raised a moment ago. You know, of course, cash, physical cash is sort of in some ways the ultimate form of anonymous currency. Uh, but the, your suggestion seems to be that in central bankers, at least when they start thinking about moving into this space, may not move in that direction. May actually move in, a, in precisely the opposite direction, one in which I, I've never they may seen be identifiable. they want it to be like cash. That's fa- it's fascinating to to think about how you how you how they will be able to reconcile. On the one hand, understandably, they'll they'll make the arguments, concerns around the, the money laundering and some of the misuse that may take place. But of course, privacy is such a, a critical component to this to these systems, and whether or not there'll be willing adopters and users of that kind of uh, coin, if you're identified and your activities are now captured by a government in a way that they aren't at the moment. You well, know, a lot of activities are captured today in ways that people don't actually know about, like suspicious transaction reports filed with FinTrack. FinTrack receives millions and millions and millions of reports with full information on people's bank transfers. So there's a lot more of that going on than people are aware of. And the bank's actually not allowed to disclose to you that they filed a suspicious transaction report. So you wouldn't actually know that they've done this. Okay. You can look up, though, the leak of these in the United States of FinCEN, which lost control over a huge number of these suspicious transaction reports. And they reveal that there's been a lot of criminal activities reported by banks in the United States that the government has failed to deal with. And that's one of the issues in anti-money laundering law, because we have this system that certainly has negative privacy implications, like you said, but it also doesn't achieve its objective. Most estimates of this are somewhere in the range of 1% of illegal money is actually stopped using these systems. So anti-money laundering comes up a lot, and this is a big topic internationally, but also the system we have isn't actually effective. It's not really stopping the criminals. And this isn't anything to do with cryptocurrency. For example, you can read British Columbia, the report that they produced a few years ago about money laundering going on in British Columbia involving casinos and real estate. This is a huge issue that's much larger than cryptocurrency. Although it's very focused in cryptocurrency and there's a lot of discussion. Oh, well, cryptocurrency is involved in these activities. In Canada, though, the vast majority of money laundering has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. Some of the same kind of speculation that we see, the opportunity to invest in 
virtual currency has, has shifted to NFTs as well. Are, are there any regulations there at that stage, or is it even earlier stage so we haven't seen it? Although admittedly, some of these NFTs may well ultimately start looking a lot like some of the kinds of things that you described earlier that, based on what your description sure sounds like, securities regulators will say that sounds like a security. For sure. And some of them are. There are NFTs um, that are securities. It's a neutral technology, like databases, like emails. You can write whatever you want in an email. Same with this. NFTs, what does it do? Depends what they want it to do. What does a blockchain do? Depends what people want it to do. So it it feels like just to, to, to wrap up, you know, when I think of some of the early discussions around the internet, and in some ways it feels like we're at an early stage this technology, although, as you noted, in some cases, it's been going on for some time. But, you know, I certainly recall during some of the early days around discussions with respect to Internet regulation, there was a tendency to describe it as a Wild West. Um, we still see some of that, that moniker applied from time to time. Uh, I'm wondering how you see this environment and where you see it headed. I mean, certainly one way to interpret a lot of what you said is that there is a why it is a wild west in the sense that there are many who may be aware of some of these rules but choose not to 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 comply with them others that choose to uh, is that what what we're likely to see for the foreseeable future or you know what do you see evolving when it comes to the law and regulation side with uh, cryptocurrencies and the blockchain what i really like about these questions is that they engage such broad topics First off, almost no one is aware of laws like about anything. They just kind of hope they're following the right things by doing what other people are doing. And there's a huge amount of this going on too. And then you have an additional problem about the global nature where how could you even know about the laws of other countries? Many of them aren't published. If people don't know about their own laws, how would they know about other places? And they change so quickly. It's impossible for anybody to keep up with this. And there's no one's even trying. I actually built a number of years ago what's still, I believe, the largest international search engine for laws with machine translation to English. We gathered up a million and a half of these laws from 90-something countries. The service has quite a bit more today. And so I first had experience seeing how difficult it is to try to even collect the world's laws, let alone to keep them fully up to date and to understand them. This is a truly impossible task. So no one could actually comply with the laws if they wanted to. And most of the time, they're not very interested in that because it's pretty rare that laws are actually very beneficial to the people creating something. Many of them are about stopping people from doing things. And that could be consumer protection, like you mentioned earlier, but they're rarely about enhancing people's business. There are laws like that, like commercial laws and things like that that make it easier for people to do business. But in the blockchain space, most of this is making their lives more difficult. Now, maybe that's worth it. Maybe it's enforceable. Maybe it'll work out. But so far, the history of this has been that people build these things because people want them. And so long as that demand is there, some people will figure out how to adapt them to local legal situations. Most people won't try. And I don't know if that's the Wild West. I think that's kind of reality that there are overlapping legal systems all over the place. If you're in Canada, it's not the Wild West. Canada has more laws than anyone can count. And many of these are of general application and always did cover things done in this space. Like if I buy something with Bitcoin from a store, 
it's not changing the fundamental nature of that. I just paid them with a different method. In the NFT space, what am I buying? Maybe I'm buying something that's like an art print. And that's just a new technology that's being used with something that already existed. And so there's a ready-made legal regime there that just can simply be applied locally to it. And there's things like the Berne Convention and all kinds of rules around intellectual property. These things long predated blockchain. And as people come up with all these new innovations for it, they kind of see how these things slot into the different legal regimes that exist. And then a little bit of it is countries coming up with new rules that are custom built for this new world. And sounds like a, a bit of the old and a bit of the new. Uh, hmm. I, I, I said this was, was going to be the last question, but I guess I have one more. And you know, you you suggested that the that the rules that are out there, especially the ones that are in some way either fit for purpose or you know increasingly attempted to apply here, aren't necessarily about making it easier to develop these kinds of innovations or these sorts of services. You know, why do you think that is? Is it the, the fear of the unknown? Is it that some of the established players are unhappy with this kind of competition? Is it that, that regulators just look at this and, and are deeply skeptical? What's the motivation, do you think, behind uh, regulatory frameworks that, that uh, you suggest are more about stopping things rather than enabling them? To be a bit provocative, fear. Most regulators fear the public. They're very concerned that people might start doing things. And they much prefer a situation where there's a small number of companies that they can control and that will follow the rules. Individuals generally don't hire lawyers. Many of them can't afford it. Large companies can. And they can follow complicated rules. They can jump through all the hoops. Individuals can't. But in most cases, the government is totally unable to enforce against individuals. And this has often been a part of people's business models in the 2000s, such as Uber and Airbnb. You're not allowed to run a bed and breakfast unless you have a license for that. And there's a ton of rules about this all over the world. And yet there's a multi-billion dollar company built around this concept. You're not allowed to run a taxi service unless you have a license. And there's a multi-billion dollar company built around that concept. And a key regulatory strategy of those companies is to make the individuals doing it and knowing that the government has no way of stopping individuals, because usually regulators might seem fierce, but they actually don't have very many people working for them, and usually not many people on the enforcement side. And in Canada, this is a difficult concept for the government to wrap their heads around a world where people are undertaking things and where things are happening peer-to-peer. This kind of stuff is a challenge for, I think, the regulator mindset and it requires a change in thinking of people switching away from fear and looking towards opportunity. Because if you didn't get that sense from my answers earlier, I don't think any legal change in Canada is going to stop the world from developing blockchain technologies. It's not going to stop the world from pushing forward with cryptocurrencies. Whatever the central bank does, it's not going to stop China's central bank from pursuing CBDCs. Canada just doesn't have that power in the world where our regulators decide and the rest of the world falls in line. It's not going to happen. And you can look at these things as how can you better control your citizens? How can you respond to stop people from doing things? Or you can look at something and say, this is an enormous opportunity. This is something that Canada could become a huge leader in. It's already 
a few steps ahead of most places in the world. We have a highly educated population that's engaged, internet connected. This is the perfect world for Canada to get involved in. And this is something that's rapidly growing and a massive export industry. And we could start looking at it with that potential lens, but that's typically not the job of regulators. It would be kind of neat if it was, but it does require a huge shift in thinking. And that'll take a long time because Canada's legal system has been built up over a long time and it's designed to be changed rather slowly. I think you're right. It's amazing to see how fast this space is moving. Um, And of course, it'll be really interesting to see whether the laws try to keep pace or whether we see that change in thinking that you just described. Addison, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.